On today's episode of Full Cast and Crew, I'm going to answer a question posed by friend of the pod and super listener Stacy, who asks, I'm interested to know why Master and Commander is one of your all-time favorite movies. I hope it was the cinematography. Well, Stacy, first of all, thank you so much for continuing to listen and be such a big supporter of the podcast. Second of all, you know that you're teeing me up by asking me this question about Master and Commander, which I've probably only mentioned, I don't know, 87 times over 87 episodes waiting for someone to sort of inquire and ask me to go in greater detail. So for better or worse, here you go. It's a great question. So let's dive into Peter Weir's 2003 epic period naval war drama, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, and see what makes this not only one of my favorite films, but also a curious harbinger of the forces that would buffet Hollywood and filmmakers like Peter Weir and films like Master and Commander, which in almost any previous era of movie making would have been a substantial hit that led to multiple sequels and a money printing franchise typified by the Marvel movies, which would commence release five years after Master and Commander. So Master and Commander, a lavish, loving period drama with the highest production values, astonishing action sequences in the era's biggest, most bankable movie star, an award-draped acting superstar, Russell Crowe, a swashbuckling Napoleon-era British seafaring epic directed by a brilliant director, a film that was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. What went wrong? to the extent that something did go wrong because the movie itself is first rate and forever. As we'll see, part of the answer to that question lies in just five words. The Lord of the Rings. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring. In which case, you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. But we'll get to that. First, the film. So, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, is based on the legendary series of seafaring novels written between 1969 and 1999 by the author Patrick O'Brien. The novels are set in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, and they're centered on the friendship of the English naval captain Jack Aubrey and the Irish Catalan physician Stephen Maturin. The series is known for its well-researched and highly detailed portrayal of early 19th century life, as well as its evocative and authentic language. So for me, my love for the film starts long before... 2003 when it came out, and it starts when I was introduced to these books by my father-in-law, who had the entire collection in the seaside house where my wife and I would visit he and my mother-in-law each summer for a few weeks. On his recommendation, I plucked one of these books from the shelves, and I was kind of immediately captivated, even though the current editions kind of have these sort of cheesy covers, and uh, the, the typesetting is not great, and the print is so small and dense, 
you just pick one of these books up and it just looks sort of like, what is this? You know, it doesn't have the kind of slick packaging of something like the Horatio Hornblower series, which, you know, come out in all sorts of sorts of new fancier editions. So immediately I was kind of intrigued because that's the sort of anomaly and oddity that catches my eye. Uh, and then I started reading them. And like many of the things that I'm interested in, these books are works of art that reveal themselves to you when you do the work, right? They're not casual beach reads. They do feature ripping plots and great page-turning adventure and twists and turns, but they're very dense and they don't stop to explain themselves along the way. There's all this naval jargon and period language is used without clarification for the modern reader. They're the kind of books that are best experienced in long-haul, multi-hour, uninterrupted reading sessions while a storm lashes rain against rattling windows and the wind whips the trees outside. Add in a crackly fire and a blanket and you've got Huga perfection. So the books are dense, but once you get into a book, you, you do figure things out. You do become educated to the world within. And then if you're like me, you have the experience of enjoying a series of novels quite unlike any other historical fiction you can care to name. They're just different. They're their own thing. And it's a world led by O'Brien's two magnificent lead characters, Captain Jack Aubrey and his best friend, ship's surgeon Stephen Maturin, who in the series of books set inside the British Navy is half Catalan and half Irish. He's also a spy, a doctor, a naturalist, uh, and the perfect counterpart to career Navy man, Jack Aubrey. So the friendship between these two men, between Aubrey and Maturin is the beating heart at the center of these novels. And over the course of 20 books, their friendship is tested, it's tempered, it's rewarded. Uh, the books are funny, they're adventurous, they're filled with really accurate historical detail. They're all sorts of naval minutia and daily life on a ship minutia. They're, they're just a singular delight if you like that sort of historical fiction. So at first I was captivated by the books. And as we know, this can be a slippery slope some years later when you hear there's going to be a film made about this series of books that you love. Because, well... In a word, Hollywood usually happens to a beloved series of books, and more often than not, they get it wrong, you know, in pursuit of more butts and seats. So for every Harry Potter, where they got it absolutely right, there's a His Dark Materials, you know, the iconic series of books by Philip Pullman, which have really embarrassingly been filmed for the big screen and the small recently, to my mind, when disastrous, completely off the mark adaptations that just don't contain any of the magic of the books. You know, it's just, I guess, when you have the wrong people involved, you can't get the essence of something through adaptation without having real affinity. Here also, for the first time, raises the giant Ent-like issue of The Lord of the Rings and the films made of those Tolkien books by Peter Jackson, because 
Those films all came out between 2001 and 2003. And 2003 is when Master and Commander was released. And we're going to see that, I think, has a lot to do with why this otherwise very natural film for a sequel never took off and became the franchise that it could have been. So those three films, the Lord of the Rings films, far more fantasy and science fiction based than Master and Commander, and they, they grossed over $3 billion in total. So that figure itself, you know, would soon be dwarfed by individual films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that would gross well over a billion dollars each. So those are some of the factors. But back to the movie, here's where it starts to get difficult for me to describe for you, the listener, what makes this movie so encompassing and such a pleasure to revisit time and time again, as I have. But having put some thought into it for these purposes, I think the singular thing I could cite is something that I don't want to sound off-putting if you haven't seen the film, namely that the movie gets right the way the novels don't stop down to explain everything that's going on to the reader. And the movie does so in a way that's more inviting and immersive. It's not exclusionary. And the way that the filmmakers can do this and can capture and rely upon the essence of what works in the novels so very well, right? Big secret. How did they do it? It's very simple. They read all the books. <laughs> they immersed themselves in the books. And I know this because in watching the movie, one of the delights I experienced the very first time was realizing that a very smart set of minds had picked out across all 20 novels, not just the two main novels that the movie is based upon. They had picked out really specific, really telling moments of detail and character development, and they then deployed them strategically throughout the brilliantly composed scripted adaptation so that if you were a fan of the books, you recognized these little moments and you appreciated how Weir and his co-writer John Colley obviously started from a place of like really intelligent fealty to the source material, you know, while also being the sort of really experienced film people who were able to recognize where this movie needs to go to become the cracklingly great seafaring adventure that it's got to be. So if you didn't know anything about the books, it didn't really matter because these kind of telling moments culled from the texts were so perfectly deployed as to create a verisimilitude that envelops you as a viewer. It pulls you into the film's grasp. It just makes you feel like, trust us, you're in good hands here. We're taking you somewhere. You may not pick up all the language right away, but you're going to pick up the emotion. And I'll talk about the emotion in a second because that's the other real secret weapon that the movie deploys. But the way all of this manifests on screen is that Everything, the emotions, the actions, physical movements, everything feels authentic. And it's that kind of authentic where you, like when you're watching a documentary authentic, you know, it's in getting all these little things right. The, the utensils that the, the lowest of the hierarchy on the ship used to eat their disgusting glop of food, right? The the difference in the way they're dining to the way the captain and his circle of officers are dining. The, like the filmmakers start to create this world in which we, the viewer, are fully immersed in something 
you can just immediately feel the authenticity of because they've done the work behind the scenes. So you don't have to suspend any disbelief because the everyday life that you're seeing on the screen, even the extraordinary circumstances you're seeing, like being in a pitched naval battle, they're always grounded in something that I think it's very, very hard to fake in a movie. And that's underlying intelligent knowledge and thought about what you are seeing on screen. We've talked about this on the podcast before, like in the episode about Heathers, for example, how unwavering attention to the smallest of detail on the sets and the clothes allows the actors and the crew to raise their game to the highest of levels because for them, they step into something that is real. It doesn't require their suspension of disbelief. So if you think about the difference of walking into a set on Heathers, which is so perfectly, specifically set dressed to the umpteenth degree versus walking onto a set in a Marvel movie where you're on a gigantic floor, green screen universe, and there is nothing. You've got to imagine what could be there. It's just, it's just a difference. I'm sorry. So to start in Peter Weir, you also have absolutely the right director at the right time for this project. He's an Australian, which I think is important. He's a fully experienced film director who really got these novels. He was making a film for like a teenaged version of himself, he said. He's smart, desperate to travel to exotic places in his mind, filled with imagination and the bravado to believe that he could escape his circumstances. Now, Peter Weir has, of course, directed movies like Picnic at Hanging Rock, Witness, Dead Poets Society, each of these in their own way about little closed societies, right? Much like the closed society of life aboard a British naval ship in the Napoleonic era. So in the key departments surrounding him as a director, you have people like Russell Boyd, the cinematographer. He'd worked with Weir since 1975. Uh, Lee Smith had worked with Weir since 1982. Lee Smith, by the way, most recently edited the Chris Nolan Batman movies and Sam Mendes' 1917 and Chris Nolan's Dunkirk. So the team assembled here had some incredible chops and it's all on display. To Stacy's point, the cinematography stands out to me as among the greatest of achievements in modern movie making. It's, it's used time and again to convey action and emotion, a sense of place, a sense of purpose. It's just, it's absolutely brilliant. And another thing that makes this movie so perfect is the casting. Mary Selway and Fiona Weir, they were the casting directors. They just did an absolutely brilliant job, top to bottom, in making sure that everyone in every single role, however long or however brief they're on screen, was the absolute embodiment of what the character is there to represent. And given that we're dealing with the British class system on board the ship, you need Everything from a prepubescent aristocratic Lord Blakeney, played by Max Perkis, to a grizzled 70-something lifer old salt like Joe Place, played by George Innes. You know, Mary Selway and Fiona Weir succeeded beyond beyond. Like, the casting is brilliant and spot on. And even background characters who have no lines have faces that speak to the plot and the overall time and the sense of place. It's just... It's an astonishing accomplishment in casting, the art form of casting. So that is one of the things that is just amazing to watch every time. And just great actors, of course. 
So of course, aside from the technical aspects of movie making, the casting of the troupe of actors gathered to support the leads we need, we absolutely must have, regardless of what you do not or you do know about Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matura and the characters, we must have the perfect embodiments of these two lead characters for this to work as a movie. And like a love story, these two men have to have chemistry together. They need to have crackle and spark because at times the flint of their natures combusts into flame and it threatens their missions and it threatens their friendship and it threatens the lives of the crew. So that has to be right. Like, let's not forget you're watching a movie and it works, right? And you're sort of like, yeah, of course it works. That's Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe. I mean, two great actors, but there's such an elusive quality to chemistry, on-screen chemistry, and and any two characters of this type of import have to have it. They don't have to be in a romantic relationship in order for us to say, oh, they had great chemistry. So Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany have great chemistry. Once again, this film gets that, that aspect absolutely right. Now, Crowe at the time was in the middle of a string of films that garnered him three Oscar nominations and one win for Best Actor in Gladiator over just a three-year period. And Paul Bettany had appeared alongside Crow in Ron Howard's film, A Beautiful Mind. So they're perfect in the roles. You feel like they own the roles that no one else could have played them quite like they did. Uh, but also there's more hinted at than we get on screen. In other words, sequel was teed up, but as we'll see, that was not to be. So without getting too deep into the plot, you know, the film follows Captain Jack Aubrey and his ship's surgeon and best friend on a sea journey about the HMS Surprise, the ship that they're on, and her cat and mouse game of war with the French privateer ship, the Acheron. And along the way, Maturin is injured with a life-threatening wound. A midshipman falls out of favor with his shipmates who think he might be a curse. A rowdy lower decks sort forgets his station. Aubrey exceeds his orders. Life on the ship is depicted in detail across all of this, all the strata of class, all the, the machinations of, of, of daily uh, rigor on the ship. But it's how it does all that. That's what's special. It, it does all that with such intelligence and an awareness of what each scene contributes to the whole. You know, it's one of those movies where you could recount the plot, but that's sort of not what's amazing about the movie. Is it a story well told? Yes. It's a swashbuckling sea adventure that turns out exactly as you would hope, but there's no wasted scenes. There's no wasted frames. And the, the, the warfare scenes are insanely good. I mean, I, I put them right up there with the battle scenes in Braveheart. Like the attention to detail, the sounds of the cannonballs, the sounds of the rigging howling in the wind in a storm. You know, th these things are deployed to such uh, effective emotional use. By the way, the sound designer got those howling, haunting rigging in the wind sounds by driving a pickup truck with this huge frame on which he had stretched a thousand feet of line and drove at 70 miles an hour in a 35 mile per hour wind and recorded the sounds. And so then they used that and they went and found period cannons that were fired in order to get specific cannon sounds. And uh, this is why the film eventually won an Oscar for sound design, and rightly so. So aiding in all that, another one of the aspects of the film that's very special is its use of music. One of the 
abiding qualities of the Aubrey Matern friendship is that they play music together when they're not fighting the French on the high seas. Jack plays the violin, Stephen plays the cello, so there's a lot of Bach and Mozart throughout. And very little in the way of overt contemporary score, or at least very little that I sort of am consciously aware of, which probably shows how effectively it's used. But I think this also helps the feeling of kind of being immersed in this historical location and not being assaulted by the contemporary booming soundtrack. Although some of the fight scenes are certainly scored in that modern vein, and they're done so quite effectively. But by far the singular music cue in the whole movie, uh, and probably part of why it just affected me so much is that it's it's my favorite piece of classical music ever. It's from the 16th century composer Ray Fawn Williams. It's called Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. So the movie uses a 1992 recording by the new Queens Hall Orchestra. One of the things that's incredible about this piece of music is that Tallis intended it to be performed a specific way. Here, I'm going to just read a little bit from the Wikipedia entry because it's going to explain it a lot better than I could. It's intended to be performed by a double string orchestra with a string quartet, employing antiphony between the three contributory ensembles. Orchestra one is the main body of strings. Orchestra two is a smaller body of strings. The published score does not stipulate the number of players in orchestra one. Orchestra two consists of two first violins, two second violins, two cellos, and one double bass, and then there is the quartet. So what that means in practice is that this piece of music takes on a haunting and almost indescribable space and dimension. Proper performances and recordings of this work call for the orchestral ensembles to be spaced some measure apart from each other. 
which contributes to the dynamism and the emotional sweep of the music. It's truly a remarkable composition. It rewards close listening through some great headphones. I've been listening to this piece of music for more than 30 years. It's always has some transfixing quality about it. So in 2014, a guy named Michael Kennedy wrote about this piece of music for a CD release. He said, quote, the spacious and sonorous use of spread chords, the majestic cadences, an extreme range of dynamics, along with the antiphony between the two string bodies playing alternately, the one answering the other, often like an echo, the contrast with the string quartet, and the passages for solo violin and the solo viola combined to create a luminous effect. And in 1920 in the Times, J. Fuller Maitland commented on the ancient and Debussian echoes of this piece. And he said, quote, throughout its course, one is never quite sure whether one is listening to something very old or very new, but that is just what makes this Fantasia so delightful to listen to. It cannot be assigned to a time or a school, but it is full of the visions which have haunted the seers of all times. That's an amazing quote, not only about this piece of music, but it actually speaks exactly to what's amazing about the movie itself. You're not sure whether you're watching something very old or something very new. In fact, it's something very new that uses the newest techniques to make something believably very old. But this music, its unmissable sense of emotion plays during one of the signature moments in the film where Aubrey has to make one of those gut-wrenching decisions a ship's captain must have often had to make, which is to sacrifice the one for the greater good of the whole. And, and this music is, is inseparable from the emotion of the film.
And the emotion of the film is another thing I want to point out. Yes, we're in the world of men. There are no female characters to speak of. It's about the way in which men do or do not express emotion to each other. And I think it's trite to say that it's kind of a love story between Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, but it is in a way. that They behave as if they're in a relationship and there are misunderstandings and there are hurt feelings and then they come together again. And there are also indelible moments of kindness between wildly disparate people on the boat. I mean, one of the most beautiful scenes at the very end of the film involves the preteen lord that I mentioned earlier, uh, who, after a big battle scene, you know, they're, they're sewing up some of the deceased in their hammocks. And as the, this character had lost an arm previously uh, in the movie and, and one of the most grueling kind of surgery scenes is, is his, his, his Maturin taking off his arm. However, lovingly he does the operation. Uh, but Lord Blakeney at the end is, is looking down at uh, a fellow midshipman, a fellow officer class person who has been killed in the final attack with the French. And of course, Blakeney only has one arm, but he wants to sew up his friend in the hammock. And there's a sort of Polynesian uh, deckhand who is as massive as Lord Blakeney is tiny. And Blakeney asks this character to help him because he only has one hand with which to sew up his friend. And the look that passes between the deckhand and Blakeney, the kindness and the warmth that runs over the deckhand's face, this is also what a lot of the movie is about for me. I think it's it's about men expressing or not expressing emotions and feelings in a period where there were limited avenues in which to do so. People are speaking formally. People are at a distance from one another. The way that they're dressed is is very formal. So a lot of what's great about this is stuff that happens in fleeting looks and gestures and facial expressions. It's not necessarily overtly stated all the time. So that is an amazing part of the film as well. And I think it's fun to watch that take place. So all accounts, critical. Otherwise, we have a superlative film for all time made by craftspeople of the highest skill, working at the absolute heights of their powers, anchored by a remarkable cast and a faithful modern approach to the adaptation of much beloved source material. And it stars the biggest movie star in the world at the time, who just also happens to be an extraordinary actor, in addition to being a gigantic global box office attraction. And those things don't happen too frequently. The film was a success, had a wonderful ending that left open enticing opportunities for a franchise or at least a sequel. That's certainly how I felt when I saw it the first time. So what happened? Why didn't it become that? Well, again, in five words, The Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, because as we've noted, the trilogy began coming out in 2001 with subsequent chapters released 2002 and 2003. 2003 was when Master and Commander came out. 2003 was also when the final movie came out. And if you remember, that was such a big deal at the time. 
Okay, Lord of the Rings movies, one, two, and three made 800, 900 million, and a billion dollars, respectively. Okay, that was not commonplace. And advances in the technology of making movies meant that a lot of previously unfilmable fantasy, science fiction, comic book, intellectual property stuff was now possible. And with those rising capabilities, audience expectations rise for what it means to go see a movie, you know? If you think about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which kicked off in 2008, Iron Man, the first Marvel movie, you know, had a long journey to the screen, started, if you really want to go back, it starts in like 1990 or something, but in terms of bringing it to the screen in 2008, that kind of started in 2001 with a deal to make the film that ultimately fell through, but then kind of commenced again in 2005. And the eventual first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe being released in 2008 and grossing $585 million. And what happened next? Avatar came out in 2009 and grossed $2.79 billion. So in between, you know, 2003 and 2009, Hollywood is forever changed. And, and this is all before streaming even, really. You know, it's before Netflix and Amazon and, and Apple are spending money to make movies. So the idea, $150 million movie, which is what Master and Commander was, grossing, quote unquote, only $211 million is suddenly not a great return on the investment for the movie studios involved in its making. So in part, I think Master and Commander was really dwarfed by the spectacle and the scope of the culmination of Peter Jackson's trilogy. You know, audiences looking for an adventure in the movie theater had invested a lot over two years going to see two previous Lord of the Rings movies, and the conclusion was like building up to be a huge thing. So that was a factor. And audience interests were changing and being pushed aeons ahead by groundbreaking advances in digital technology, you know, really pioneered by Peter Jackson in those movies. So if you're a studio, why spend all the time and the effort and I think this is also very crucial. Why employ a director who probably can command a percentage of the gross and final cut because he or she or they have earned that right over the course of their careers as proven auteurs? Why get into that business when you can make Marvel movies that do not require the same level of craft and attention to detail that a film like Master and Commander does? So sure. The Marvel movies are technical marvels in their own right, but they're no way at all the sort of combined result of the crafts of acting and writing and directing and filming and editing that a film like Master and Commander is. But times changed, and a faithful adaptation of a seafaring epic simply didn't resonate widely enough in a year when also the Academy decided to give the final installment of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, all the other Oscars that Massacre and Commander, a far, far superior film than Return of the King, the last Lord of the Rings movie, uh, didn't win. So Master and Commander was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and in the end, it only won for Best Sound Editing and Best Cinematography, both very, very well deserved, but the movie deserved a lot more than that, and Lord of the Rings simply won everything else. And honestly, not because Return of the King was an amazing movie. It was because of the business that the three films 
had contributed to Hollywood and the fact that they changed Hollywood forever. This was the victory lap for Peter Jackson's film trilogy, which if we're honest with ourselves right now, do you love those movies? Do you have a, a deep abiding emotional attachment to the Lord of the Rings films? I mean, they're good. They're okay, right? But I, I don't think they really stand quite as iconic over film history as the footprint that they occupy. I, I just don't think they stand up quite that well. You know, Peter Jackson did a good adaptation of a series of books, a good one. Peter Weir at all, they did a superior adaptation. One franchise made a billion dollars, the other made $200 million. So in the wisdom of Hollywood, one of those things we're not gonna be doing again, and that was Master and Commander. So there you have it, Stacy. That's some kind of answer to your question. Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World is a wonderful, engaging movie that affords you blessed escape from the trials and tribulations of the modern age. Uh, it's a couple of hours very well spent in the often humorous company of Captain Jack Aubrey, Stephen Matern, and their shipmates, young and old. Watch it if you haven't seen it or cozy up with an old familiar friend if you have. If you've seen the movie and love it as I do, it's always worth a rewatch. And until next time, thank you very much as always for listening to Full Cast and Crew. <laughs>